This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. What's it like when one of your friends on death row is led away to be executed? You have a prepaid call from William A. Nogueira. An inmate at the California State Prison, San Quentin. This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. I had to be a different, complete guy, which is the guy who walked walkways of St. Quentin's death row without a gang, without a, a group of people around me. It was just me. Soon after you went into to be on death row, and you didn't really understand the prison workout system so much, but then he said, we're going to do 75 sets of these. To me, that seems extreme. So I'm wondering if there's a danger of overtraining, wearing yourself out, so that you're. <laughs> no, no, that's actually funny. That's not, and it's funny, and, I, and I'll tell you why. Right? And I, <laughs> that's a good one, Matt. No, I'll tell you why. All right, welcome to Death Row Diaries. I'm Matt Ralston. And I'm William McGarrow. And today we're going to be discussing a notorious criminal, one of the more notorious criminals in American history, and that's Mr. Charles Manson, uh, who Bill had uh, some run-ins with. But before that, we have a few listener questions we're going to knock out real quick. We appreciate your questions. Thank you for sending them in. Jake from Compton asks... In 2007, when tobacco was banned in California prisons, did people freak out? I guess we learned that earlier in our conversations that you can't smoke in prison anymore. I didn't know that. So I'm imagining, you know, nicotine's obviously very addictive and seems like it would really piss people off. Well, yeah, I mean, hey, thanks for the question. And yeah, you'd be surprised. When I first got to prison, um, you could, the state of California would supply you with tobacco. You could actually ask the tear officer to go bring you a canister, and they would bring you a large canister of prison tobacco with papers and everything, and they would give you matches or, I mean, uh, lighters to smoke. And you could have it nonstop as much as you wanted. You could smoke till you died of cancer. So, yeah, when they banded it, what happened was there was such a need for it, they created a black market. And that's what happens. And it's prohibition, you know, alcohol, that ha- same thing happened with tobacco. Um, it, it phased out. The mainline lost the privilege to smoke first, and of course death row kept the privilege for another maybe two years, two and a half years. They allowed us to continue smoking. So a lot of guys, what they would do is they go to the store and they'd buy 60, 70, even 100 pouches like a buck fifty a piece, and they turn around, they'd sell them for like a book, book and a half of stamps, or two books of stamps, depending on demand. And you would get a killing. I mean, you buy one pouch for a buck forty-five, and you're selling it for twelve, thirteen dollars. So yeah, people freaked out, but there was a black market. He immediately stepped in, and it kind of soothed things out. And of course, that died out, and 
right now there is no smoking whatsoever, no tobacco products at all in the prison system in California. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, they're providing free tobacco, so of course people are going to get hooked, and then they they take it away, and now that it doesn't exist, people coming in don't have it, and so I'm assuming they live longer. Um, yeah, but interesting enough about that, that same question is that I was surprised, I was actually shocked, I made a bet that somebody would sue the state of California behind tobacco. You have these guys suing for alcohol, that they're alcoholics, and you know, it says on a very big label that if you drink this, you could die. Same thing with cigarettes, this causes cancer, yet people are suing tobacco companies making billions of dollars. I'm surprised that someone didn't sue CDCR for supplying them, basically, with a habit to kill themselves. Yeah, yeah, I mean, because you can't, if you are hooked, I mean, you know, the withdrawal symptoms, I think, are headache and agitation we all know that but obviously someone on the outside could go get themselves some cigarettes but so yeah i could see some kind of distress being caused i i think it's probably a really good idea that they did that but it's just kind of i guess that was well yeah what i meant is just yeah no what i meant was that they supplied it for i don't know decades they gave people tobacco every single day so i'm surprised people didn't sue say hey you supplied us with this stuff. Now I have cancer. So you were kind of like a conduit of the tobacco industry. Oh, I see what you're saying. So Armand from Philadelphia wants to know, he says apparently some prisons in Brazil allow prisoners to reduce their sentence by four days for every book they read and write a report on. I'm assuming there's a limit, but nonetheless, is that a good idea? Yeah, I think it's a great idea. Uh, one of the biggest problems in prisons today is education. A lot of the guys that come into prisons are not educated. Um, and if you are given an incentive to read, look, whatever the reason are that you want to get out, whatever your motivation is, you're actually reading. And if you write a book report, you're learning how to communicate literally. So, yeah, I think it's a great idea. And I wish California would do things of that same uh, sort. That would be great. I mean, how many books have I read? Probably a few thousand easily, so maybe it might help me get out quicker. Do they allow, do they censor books, like uh, books on prison breaks and D.B. Cooper and things like that? Uh, you know, it, most of the books they, they censor in prisons have to do with gang affiliation, um, prison gangs, things like that. But most of the literature is allowed for us, you know, we can read it. It's it's not that big of a deal. I mean, in the seventies it was plain issue, in the eighties, but not anymore. Cool. So, Lena, this is a really interesting question, and we'll have to temper this a little bit because I I think she may have given us an idea for a future episode. But Lena from Boise asks, how would O.J. Simpson have fared in prison had he been convicted? You know what? Thank you for the question. That's actually a great question. Um, I've had this discussion with a number of different people, and race has everything to do with it. Okay, so O.J. Simpson, obviously not a rapist, not a killer of children or any of that lesser. So he would have come to prison and would have been fined. The problem is the administration in California prisons would never have allowed him to go to a regular yard. Can you imagine O.J. Simpson gets killed? 
No. So they wouldn't have allowed him to go. Howard is fair, I think, pretty well because he is the juice. He is uh, probably and arguably the greatest running back that's ever run in the NFL. He's also an African-American, and they look after their own people. I think he'd do well. If he were on a main line, like in L.A. County, which he was, and he was in protective custody, or on a main line here, there's a very good chance people would begin to pressure him because they know he has money and influence. Yeah, that's interesting. Maybe we'll go through that in further detail at some point, because he was a wife beater, but, you know, anyway, let's get into our episode today, and that is Charles Manson, who spent a brief time in San Quentin prison, Um, but why don't we start from the beginning? This is almost as bad as we've seen so far, his upbringing, right? Yeah, he, and he doesn't start off in a good place, but as you and I have discussed before, he was he was sort of a bad seed to begin with. He was wired a certain way, and of course, what he went through as a child didn't help him. Well, it actually did help him become the person he became. So it's kind of a uh, the opposite in this in this sense. But yeah, let, let me let's start from the beginning. His mother, sixteen year old prostitute has him, uh, his father, Colonel Walker Henderson Scott, uh, immediately leaves the mother before he's even born, and she files a paternity suit against him. Um, And she marries a man while she's pregnant from another man. And his name was William Eugene Manson, and that's where Charles Manson got his name. It's not not his biological father, It's, it's the man his mother married. Um, but yeah, I mean, you could, just the drama in that right there, you know this is not going to turn out well. But, and his mother immediately is a, she assaults people, she has a robbery, and in the 1930s, that's pretty rare for women to be so violent, uh, so outgoing, but she's immediately caught and sent to prison for five to ten years. And young Manson is sent to live with his aunt and uncle, who are, by all accounts, decent folk. They church-going people, and from all accounts, Charlie Manson likes to sing in the church choir, but he hates church. And um, it just it doesn't take long for he to realize that he's not wanted anywhere that he's at. Um, at the age of nine, his mother is now out. He goes to try and, you know, reunite with his mother. And his mother completely busts his, his advances, tells him, no, get away from me. I don't want anything to do with you. And what is Charles' reply to that? He lights his school on fire. And he's caught for petty theft. And he's a very young nine years old when this all takes place. So you got to think about that, Matt. You're a nine-year-old boy, and your mother gets out of prison. You're thinking, you're imagining. Every day, you must think about your mom. You go to see your mother, and she tells you to get the hell away from her. She wants nothing to do with you. It's insane, you know, and and going against this motherly instinct that, you know, any woman with a child understands that that doesn't even compute for them. So 
obviously something was pretty wrong with his mom. Um, and his, you know, his biological father, Colonel Walker Scott Henderson, his name is Colonel. He, he told Manson's mom that he was a Colonel in the army, but his name is just Colonel. So, you know, his dad is like a con man and his mom is, we don't know, but, um, mentally abnormal for sure. Yeah. I mean, if you think about it, the guy who names her kid Colonel, <laughs> I mean, Colonel Sanders, is, I mean, how that, I mean, come on, let's, let's, it is funny. So let's, I mean, who the hell names her kid Colonel? I don't know where that kid's dad came up with that name, but it, yeah, not good. And um, so, yeah, Manson, he lights the school on fire. He's caught for petty theft, and he is thrown into a boys, well, they used to call them reform schools or uh, school for boys. And this one was in Indiana. And, and Manson is like, he's wired for this. And, you know, you look at his parents and you think, God, you know, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. A year after leaving the boys' school, he's arrested for robbing a grocery store. And, you know, at the same time, he's he's working as a delivery boy for Western Union, and he's caught stealing from that place as well. So from the very beginning, this guy can't stop stealing, and he's not good at it, because they catch him, and they send him to Boys Town in Nebraska. And look, these are bad places. I've never been at a home for delinquents, but I hear some of the horror stories that people tell about juvenile hall and YTS and youth authority. And these places are in the 40s. These are horrible places. But he's only there four days and he escapes. He's on the run right away. He gets a gun, he steals a car, and he drives. He's trying to drive all the way to his uncle's house and he commits two more robberies in the way, uh, on the way that to his uncle's house, and he's caught again. And then they send him back to the Indiana School for Boys. This guy's not good at what he does, obviously. No, but he's very prolific from a young age. And <clears throat> all he continues doing the rest of his life is committing crimes. Uh, he constantly, even when the Manson family thing, you know went down, they were constantly stealing cars and running a stolen car ring, you know, and then, so obviously whatever's his problem, you put him in these boys schools where he's just getting brutalized, not good for rehabilitation, obviously. So he's just in this spiral now. I don't even blame him for trying to escape really, but then he has no resources. Yeah, no, you're abs- yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And these schools are brutal. And he is, just so we're clear, he's a very small boy. And I don't mean, you know, he's small, but he's, you know, strong. He's a very petite boy. And that does not add up to good things in a youth authority or delinquent camp. Because when they put him in an Indiana boys school, he is raped several times there. And... He then runs away constantly. He, he ran away 18 times because of the, the sexual assaults that he was suffering in these places. Now, if we could just pause for a moment there regarding that. This is where Manson 
in my opinion, begins to learn something very important. And that is how to read people. He can tell when people are interested in him in a way that's rather than just a friend and they may be um, interested in him in a sexual way. He learns to read people. That's something extremely important in prison. There's many people that go to prison for, for dozens of years and they never learn how to do this. He learns it out of a need to survive. So this plays a huge part later on in his life and that is the ability to read people. Because obviously he can't fight these guys. There's too many of them, they're too big, he's very small. And so he escapes. And obviously the last time that he escapes, he brings two boys along with him and they rob their way to California by basically sticking up gas stations in a stolen car. When they get to Utah, they're arrested. And for crimes that are not considered federal because he crossed a state line in a stolen car, he is sent to the Washington, D.C.'s National Training School for Boys, another delinquency camp. And he's there for several years till he is finally released in 1955. And he marries Rosalind Jean Willis. And he moves to L.A. because she's pregnant here we go again, he does so in a stolen car. He is caught again. And they give him five years probation. And instead of this guy just saying, okay, I have probation, let's go, I'm going to talk to my probation officer, he doesn't appear in court. So they revoke his probation, and they send him in 1956 to Terminal Island in Los Angeles. And his son, Charles Manson Jr., is born while he's in prison. And this gets really dicey here, Matt, because two weeks before he's released, his wife leaves him for another man. And how does he respond to this? He escapes. He steals a car, and he's arrested again. <laughs> yeah. Two, right. two weeks before his parole hearing, he escapes, and, uh, yeah, he, he just continues. I, I think he really was in love with his wife to some degree, although we'll, we'll figure out that he tends to pimp out any, any woman he's intimate with, but he had an attachment. I think I'm sure that broke him further. Yeah. It's interesting because when you, yeah, no, you're right. When you're, when you're in prison, people tend to latch onto things stronger than normal people will. Um, he's probably dependent on her, for finances, he was probably dependent. Maybe, I mean, maybe he just cared about his child. I don't know. But I know that from experience, I've seen people respond to uh, someone leaving them quite differently than somebody who is actually out and has a normal understanding for an emotional relationship. And from what we know of Charles Manson, he has these issues, these detachment issues, these these rejection issues, his mother rejected him. So I think this kind of plays a part in his life. He's trying to form who he really is because he is released in 1958 and we'll be back when I come back for my next 15 minute block. Hey man, I'm back. All right. So yeah, he just continues doing what he does kind of committing petty crimes, right? Yeah, he, he is basically a petty criminal. 
he has robberies, but they're, I mean, they're committed in a way that just shows no experience. So he tries a new career. He gets out, it's 1958, and he begins the career as a pimp. And his, I guess the, the woman, the, the young girl who he's using as a prostitute is 16 years old. So I'd like to take a little pause right here for a moment and just say that Charles Manson is a freaking child molester, okay? Because he's 24 years old at this point. If he's pimping out a 16-year-old child, and, you know, common sense says that most pimps are sleeping with the girls that they're, you know, selling, that makes him a child molester in my book. So it doesn't take him long. Um, he marries Leona Stevens, a prostitute, and he's arrested again for pimping. So he's not good at that either. And he's sent to the U.S. Penitentiary at McNeil Island, where in 1961 something very big happens. And not too many people take a lot of time to look at this. I think this is the most important part of his development, of Charles Manson's development to become the leader of a cult. And that is, in 1961, he begins to study Scientology at the prison. And he is pretty obsessed with it. So much so that when he finally gets out, and this is nearly nine years later, it's 1967, the world has completely changed from one that he knew of basically conservative people to basically... The, the year of love or uh, the hate ashbury the the music the psychedelics as soon as he gets out he spends 150 hours which is a lot of hours auditing with the church and learning the dog the doctrine of the church and he's getting really into this stuff but it's just not the church charles manson already has in his mind what he believes in it's twisted the rapes all the stuff happened in prison, him leading people. He's coming up with an idea of how to be able to survive in this new world. And when he gets out, what he sees, it's like putting a fat kid in a candy store. Meaning a lot of kind of transient, ex uh, experimental young people who, uh, you know, are down to have a good time and... Uh, experience new things, which means associating with people they maybe haven't before because there, there are no people like this in their hometown, and maybe it's a rebellion thing against their parents. And so you're saying he's kind of got a pick of the litter when it comes to his mm, pimping activities. Well, yes, but not so much just the pimping. It's the usage of people, the uses of women. And, of course, this is a time where... America's going through a cultural change. You have the music, the drugs, the psychedelic, the free love, all this stuff that's going on, and you throw this guy into it that understands one of the most important things of manipulation, which is to find the weakest people they can find, the ones that can be manipulated easily, and he finds them because as soon as he gets out of prison, he's supposed to parole to Los Angeles. He doesn't even go to the parole officers. He goes straight to Berkeley, California, which is the hub of what is going on. He's probably heard about this stuff in prison. He's getting a lot of uh, feed from the, from the television, what he's seen happening, and he knows 
that he can find a way in that world. He's also an aspiring writer, uh, a musical writer, and he plays music. He learned how to play guitar in prison. And uh, I've actually heard, and this is interesting, I've actually heard some of the recordings that he did. And you know what? I'm just going to be completely straight with you. He wasn't bad. He had a kind of a Bob Dylan-ish acoustic harmony that just kind of went with the whole flower power, love first, fight later type of attitude. And he fits. So he immediately comes to the Bay Area and he's not violated. He meets a guy by the name of Roger Smith. And he is interesting because he is a supervisor of criminology research and a federal probation officer. So, so for those who don't understand what that means, that means he's experimenting with people. In those days, the FBI, if you want to say the CIA, governmental bodies were working within the Haight-Ashbury district, and they were giving LSD methamphetamines to the general public to see how they would respond. His probation officer is Roger Smith, and he's the head of this. And, of course, he gives Charles Manson LSD, and he says, according to David Smith, as well as Roger Smith, who are both in this, um, the founders of the Haight-Ashbury Free Clinic, who were receiving federal funding from the National Institute of Health to study the effects of LSD and methamphetamines on culture, on counterculture. So these guys immediately say that the transformation that they saw in Charles Manson, they had never seen it before. As soon as he starts dropping acid, he turns different. He becomes, becomes very manipulative. He understands the power that he has. And this is how... Charles Manson begins to become that person that has become, well, basically legendary in all these, you know, because the movies and, and, and ultimately what he did and his family did. Yeah. And he's 32 or 33 years old. He's into his thirties and, you know, they, they call him flower children for a reason. You know, some of these kids are 15, 16, whatever they're they're younger than he is so he has all this experience and yeah he's a busker you know so he hangs out and uh plays his guitar for periods of time and he can actually do it and back then not as many people could could do it uh and he's tiny so he's not physically intimidating you know so maybe he he can blend in a little more with this young crowd than your average con. Yeah, no, and he, he goes to work right away. It doesn't take him long to begin to bring in the Scientology, the Bible, music at that time, and kind try and explain to the kids that he's around, because they are kids. They're 16, 17, 18, 19-year-old kids. He's a 33-year-old ex-con who spent more than 20 years in prison and in jails, he knows how to pick them out of a crowd. And he's trained for it. He's been, he has trained himself over the years as a survival mode. And it, is, it didn't take long for people to begin to follow him. He begins to preach this philosophy. It, you know, as I say, it's a mixture of science fiction novels called Stranger in a Strange Land, the Bible, Scientology, 
all these things, the Beatles, he brings together, and his first person that he actually attracts is a, is a young woman named Mary Berner, and she is a UC campus, University of California campus librarian. And as soon as he meets her, he talks her into him staying at her house for a few nights. That turns into a permanent arrangement. And it isn't very long before he has Lynette Squeaky Fom, a teenage runaway, and he convinced her to move in with him. And Mary Burner allows it. Okay, so the thing about Squeaky is that as soon as he meets her, he tells her, and this is, this is classic con man games. He walks up to her. Of course, she's giving all the signals of being rejected by her family, that her father doesn't love her, and he tells her, your father doesn't love you. And, oh my God, this is huge. No one's ever told her something like this. She's under the influence of drugs. He is already portraying himself as a father figure. He brings her to the house. He tells these girls to take off their clothes and he tells them to look in the mirror and he convinces them that they're the most beautiful thing in the world. Of course, they've never heard this or insecure. So what Charles Manson brings to the table is a bit of what a pimp does to lure girls into the street life, a bit of the cult leader type of guy and just a good con man. Because that's what Charlie Manson was, was a con man. It worked on the street with these kids. It didn't work in prison for him because of the obvious reasons. You can't con a con man. And in prison, the con men here are a lot bigger than him and a lot stronger. Yeah, it's interesting. Like you said, it seems like he has a, a need to control people. Maybe it's part of not having a family life ever. Um, I think he also just enjoys screwing with people, but he's also like unemployable and like borderline homeless. So he needs essentials, right? Yeah. Well, yes. And he gets that because it doesn't take him long that the crowds begin to grow. Playing the music, preaching his particular philosophies. Everybody's looking for something. Everybody believes, at least in the hate Ashbury and those type of crowds where they're looking, their kids looking for love and looking for their flower children, they're against the Vietnam War. They're against governments. Charles Manson knew how to use that. And he used that in his philosophies. And the crowds began to grow. The, the leader of the clinic, David Smith, he wrote in one of his books, love needs care that Manson began to reprogram his followers. It didn't take long for him to immediately make them submit to his will through the use of LSD and sex guys like Tex Watson, an all American boy, all American football player and athlete. He got this guy to come to him. How do you do it? He had something that Tex wanted. Tex was probably very insecure. Charles Manson brought girls to him. Girls that would give sex anytime they wanted him. So this was something he really provided for these guys. So he was a dual service guy. He gave them all the answers they needed, and he gives them sex. What boy doesn't want that? Right. Uh, So to take a step back and clarify, uh, 
his parole officer's name is Roger Smith. And yes. at some point later, eventually we'll find out that Roger Smith has only one client as a parole officer, and that's Charles Manson. However, Roger Smith is involved with this Haight-Ashbury Free Medical Clinic, and that is run by a guy named uh, David Smith. But they are both mm, colleagues to a degree, or they're affiliated. It's somewhat confusing because they both have the last name of Smith. But what they do have is a common interest in researching the effects, like you said, of LSD and, and methamphetamine on this new movement of people who are, are spilling into this this one region. So they are looking at these kids as guinea pigs to a degree for their research. Yeah, absolutely. And there's, there's a lot of evidence um, to prove that it wasn't just David Smith and Roger Smith that were working for the federal government and with the federal government. There were several uh, of these type of programs going on where they were observing the effects of LSD on the general public. It happens that Charles Manson steps into this because of his reaction and how he began to manipulate people. They, they, they took a big interest in him. Now, we're not suggesting, at least I'm not. You have 60 seconds remaining. That Charles Manson was a federal agent. No. He was a petty criminal in everything we've said he was. He just responded to the drugs in a way that interest these particular researchers, Roger Smith and David Smith, where they found a, a lot of interest in what he was doing and, how, and why the drugs enhanced his ability to work and do what he did best, which was manipulate people. That was of high interest to, to, to this research group. Williams A. Tabira. An inmate at the California State Prison, San Quentin, San Quentin, California. This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. Hey, ma'am. Yeah, we're back. Uh, could you clarify something with Roger Smith? Is it normal for a parole officer to have um, kind of a different job or interest that involves criminals, you know, in terms of doing research? I, I kind of thought that parole officer was a uh, full-time job. I know that he transitioned out of it, but he then held on to some clients and I'm, I'm just wondering how normal that is or, or was. Well, it's not normal. It's a conflict of interest. So, yeah, that, obviously, he had a dual role. He was a, pro a parole officer, probation officer, obviously. But that he was involved with this clinic, that they were researching on the general public with LSD. Look, these are things that are <laughs> highly illegal, first of all. Okay, so... He had some type of uh, protection, and it was federal protection because all these clinics were funded by the federal government. And there is ample evidence that suggests that Charles Manson was working with federal authorities. Um, and I believe because of what I've seen, and as long as I've been an assistant, I've seen how this happens, that he more than likely informed on a number of probably small-time drug dealers in the Haight-Ashbury district because he probably knew exactly what was going on there. He fed the information to them. They got those people out of business in order for those clinics to thrive. Um, 
and would suggest that as well is that Charles Manson was arrested on a couple of occasions during this time. One of them, he, he stopped the arrest of one of his girls, a Ruth Ann Morehouse. And when you, know, you step in front of a police officer, stop him from arresting somebody, you're going to get arrested. And he does. But instead of being violated for his parole, sent back to prison, he is, he is mysteriously, he disappears for a few days. The charges are reduced to a misdemeanor, and he goes home with, who else? Roger Smith. So it, there seems to be something going on there that none of us can be sure of, but what I can assure you is that he was, in fact, working with the federal government and the authorities. Well, let's think about it from a common sense perspective without any evidence except anecdotal. Uh, these are doctors who are doing research on the effects of hallucinogenic drugs and uh, drugs in general. And they open a, a house in the Haight-Ashbury that's like a flop house, but it's not. It's, it's, uh, it's just designed to recruit people to study. But these are like you know, guys that can't really pass is hippies. You know, the hippies were pretty adept at, at spotting um, uh, someone who was posing, right? So these are like doctors who grow their hair out a little bit and, and put on some plaid pants, but they're not uh, in that culture and, and they're pretty easily sussed out. Now you find this guy that has this harem of followers who are you know, part of the following is based on doing LSD. Of course they want to associate with this guy because they, they need him to a degree, or at least he's, he's beneficial to them. Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's pretty accurate. That's exactly what they thought. They couldn't blend in. And I don't think they wanted to blend in these doctors. They wanted to study the effects. And here you have this guy, Charles Manson, to have a bit of what they need, which is his ability, or for lack of a better word, that he was able to change with. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. With the assistance of LSD, or it changed it changed them in enough of a way that it raised the eyebrows of these doctors. And in that time, of course, they thought that LSD and methamphetamines they were going to give it to soldiers. If you, if you recall, back then it was all about you know how we can we can make the perfect soldier. Does LSD enhance people, do you think? Um, does methamphetamines allow a soldier to go on for 24 hours straight fighting without rest? So these are all the things that they were studying for, of course, a larger cause, which was the federal government getting this information that was programmed into files or whatever, and someone was going over this, saying, okay, this, this works for this, this doesn't work for that. And as we know, in those times, they were also using U.S. soldiers and they were feeding them these LSDs and these methamphetamines to see what they could do and how they could perform. So this is a very interesting time in the culture, the America, everything, because there's such turmoil going on. And Charles Manson's the perfect guy 
to exploit these things. Yeah, uh, these programs eventually reach like major universities, at least 50 of them, all kinds of prisons. Uh, in fact, the actor Danny Trejo, who would later be in prison with Manson, said he was experimented on with hypnosis. And I, I don't know if you can speak to, I know it's later later for you, but if you've heard stories of guys being experimented on, doped up. Yeah, the rumors are around. I've never experienced it personally, uh, but uh, Danny Trejo, the actor, Machete, um, he, was in, he was in prison when I first got into prison. You know, in the 80s, and uh, Charles Manson was there then, and obviously he, he died in prison, but there's a lot to be said about these experiments that they were having on prisoners. I mean, that's one of the reasons that even today when they come around with booster shots for COVID and things of that sort, a lot of guys are a little shy about getting in, into those things that they feel they're going to be experimented on. So it, it, it has crossed several decades and generations of prisoners, but that's still present in our minds. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's quite an interesting situation here because, um, by this time Manson, um, he's picking up, I mean, it's dozens of followers. He's got more than 30 people surrounding him at all times. And, um, he even goes and moves to a ranch, um, outside of, um, Los Angeles. It used to be a movie studio and and he has his whole cult there, but now there's a big change in Charles Manson because uh, he's getting paranoid. And we don't know if it's the LSD, the methamphetamines. We don't know what it is. Or is it mental health issues? Because as we see him later in life, he's not wrapped too tight. There's obviously a lot of things wrong with this guy. But he begins to start preaching this doomsday cult theory. And it's based on his inability to get himself into Hollywood, into the recording studio. You know, he did some things with the Beach Boys. He had uh, one of the, the Beach Boys, Wilson. He had the girls uh, take him to his house. They kind of were with him, gave this guy, you know, sex, drugs. And Charles Manson thought, this is my end. This is how I'm going to get into the recording studios with the Beach Boys and record my songs. I'm going to become a rich and famous guy. Well, they kind of used him. One of his songs made a B-side of one of their albums. They changed the uh, the, the lyrics, the, uh, the song title, and it really upset him. It made him feel, here's that word again, rejected, and that they got over on him. And now he's thinking along the ways that I understand. He's thinking like a convict. He's thinking, these people did this to me. Now I need to get back to get respect. That's a prison mentality. And he begins to preach something that also comes from prison, racism. And he brings that into his cult theory that there is going to be a race war and that the African-Americans going to rise up against the white man, that there's going to be a bloody war, that he and his followers are going to go underground somehow, and that when it's all over with, that the African-American man will be standing tall, he'll be the king of the world, and that they will need a Caucasian, a white guy, to actually be able to rule the world. And that man is going to be Charles Manson. Now, I don't know how the hell that philosophy works. 
makes no sense to me. I'm sure it makes no sense to you. But that's what he was preaching. But by this time, his followers, they believe he's half Messiah, half devil. And yeah, he's got to believe in this stuff. And that's what all these homicides really come down to. This is Charles Manson's way of kind of, well, for lack of a better word, of either, well, shoot, I don't know how else to say it, shit or get off the pot. Because that is exactly, he's, he's following his frame. They're not really believing too much he's saying. A lot of people are just, are, are leaving him. But he's got this inner core, and they really believe in him. So he's got to do something. He's got to cinch his domino. He has to really make them believe. And what happens next is what he believes is going to bring them all together. And, well, it kind of did because obviously they're still in prison or dead. His doomsday theory, I mean, we've seen that with hucksters and these televangelists. I mean, that's the oldest trick in the book, right? It's just telling your followers that the world's going to end if they don't do hmm, do what you want, right? Yeah, that's exactly what it is. I mean, they've you Jamestown, or is, is it Jamestown's, or, yeah, it's Jamestown. All these, it's all of them. It's the Waco uh, people. It's that same theory, doomsday, a Messiah leader, and it's just, it's ridiculous, but you have to sit back and wonder, what were these kids thinking was, were their lives that bad at that time that they led a hungry predator, as small as he was, dominate them and make them commit some of the worst crimes that anybody's ever seen in the history of, well, of, of, of this area of California? Because they, uh, they were butchering people. This, this is something that they, that's, it's almost hard to wrap your head around because see, these were kids. They were young ladies. Uh, uh, some of them were, were a little disenfranchised, but they, they weren't criminals. They, they weren't doing time in prison or anything. They were basically just kids. And he was able to wrap them around his head and as much as Charles Manson says that I didn't kill anybody, I'm a mirror of you, and all these prison, I, you know, all those things that he says, you can't help, at least I can't help but smile, because I've heard them all before. This is old prison tricks. These are old con men or convicts way of getting people to do things. And it's almost comical, but it worked. Yeah. yeah it did work. And, and it's, I mean, I think why people are very fascinated by this is he's now controlling all these people through drugs. He's making them take drugs. He's forcing them to have sex and, and pushing all their boundaries, saying if you don't have sex, you're kicked out of the group. And, and this is exactly what these researchers were curious about is, is would something like this work? Um, and it's also... You know, the drugs broke these people, I think, to a large degree, like like most drug addicts. Um, you know, the summer of love sounds really rosy, but the fact is the reason they were uh, associated with this with this Haight-Ashbury Free Clinic, uh, aside from Roger Smith's connection, was they were constantly going in 
because they had sexually transmitted diseases. Um, you know, they were hungry, they were dirty. After the party's uh, gone on for what, a couple years? They're desperate. Yeah. You know? No, yeah, you're right. But look, look at, look at these terms. Of the millions of people that came to the Theta Ashbury, experienced the summer of love, the music, the psychedelic, you know, everything from the doors to the Zeppelin, everything that was going on, it wasn't bad for everybody. You have 60 seconds remaining. It was bad for these particular group of people that were under the influence of the drugs in Charles Manson because everybody else that went to Summer of Love didn't end up like this. A lot of people just yeah. partied and, and got laid and, and uh, went about their lives. Um, yeah, right? <laughs> and now our CEOs of big companies and they're not in prison somewhere trying to parole because they're murderers. So eventually, as we all know, he is tried uh, for for murder for his part in the Tate LaBianca murders, and he is sentenced to prison. And there's some pretty interesting things about his stay in prison, aren't there? Yeah, his he is not a very popular guy in prison by any stretch of the imagination. Um, as we know, he was given the death penalty. And that changed, too. So we're going to be talking about none of the murders, uh, the ones that you know about, and the ones that you may not know about, because we're all very familiar with the Tate and LaBianca murders, but he was also involved with other murders. And we'll be discussing that, his prison stay, his last days in prison, and some of the antics that Charles Manson got into while he was a prisoner at the... California Department of Corrections. Yeah, and we'll talk about your interaction with him uh, in San Quentin, in which he had a suspiciously brief stay. And we'll get into all that next time uh, on Death Row Diaries. So, again, I've been Matt Ralston. And I'm William Nogueira. And these are the Death Row Diaries. We'll see you next time. By the way, follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Death Row Diaries and Patreon, also Death Row Diaries, where you can get exclusive content and merchandise. Anyway.